Major League Baseball is finally back. Yes. As the new season gets underway, the Ringer Podcast Network has baseball fans covered with the Ringer MLB show playing for free on the TuneIn app for the month of April. Download the TuneIn app for free and listen to Ben Lindbergh and Michael Bauman break down baseball's biggest stories throughout the opening month of the MLB season. And as a bonus for Ringer listeners, the Ringer Podcast Network has partnered with TuneIn to give baseball fans a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium to listen to every live home call from every MLB game around the league. Catch the Ringer MLB show only on TuneIn for the entire month for free. And when you upgrade to TuneIn Premium to get those live MLB games, just go to TuneIn.com slash Ringer and subscribe. Download the TuneIn app for free and start listening today. TuneIn, your everything audio app. Go Phillies. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio, he's bringing back Mumblecore. It's Andy Greenwell. What a thing to go out on. I am anti-Mumblecore. That's my vibe today. That's my vibe this week. I'm feeling positive. The NBA playoffs are almost here. You excited? Better call Saul coming back. A lot. TV's coming back in general. Thor coming. Thor's coming. Well, Thor went. He left. Like Earth <laughs> or whatever dimension Asgard is yeah. in, but he's back in uh, our lives. Not, I would not call myself a Thor scholar, so I'm excited to be mm. sitting with one. Uh, mm. Andy, today we are going to talk briefly about Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok. Ra- Ragnarok. Did you not have Dallaire's Book of Norse Myths? I wonder whether or not I have... Is it dyslexia or laziness? I think you are just excitable. Table that for a later date. We'll talk (laughs) quickly about Better Call Saul coming back for its third season on tonight. Uh, We're going to spend a significant chunk of time talking about a delightful new movie called Win It All, which is streaming on Netflix, directed by Joe Swanberg and starring friend of the pod? Definite friend of the pod. CC Pod Save America. Uh, That's Jake Johnson. And then we will... By the way, we're not going to spoil the movie. We're not going to spoil the movie, although I wouldn't call it necessarily a plot plot heavy film. No, we uh, want you to see it as the point. And then we'll also talk a little bit about Crashing, which ended its first season last night on the Home Box Office channel. Um, Greenwald, let's do in or out. Bottom line, are you in or are you out? In or out of what? In or out, Andy, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, just yeah. new trailer, first trailer just yeah, dropped. Sneak uh, preview. Our first look at Cake Blanchett. Mm. Cake Blanchett caking up, uh, getting that art installation funding money. She's got you know when you're when you're doing such incredible theater work. Sure. When you're doing uh, Ibsen. When you have five performances of Caucasian Chalk Circle going simultaneously in each continent. I don't even know what that means. Is that a play? Yeah, man. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that theater nerds. Put on when they have to put stuff Where do on. you get that information? I, I I don't want to admit my past. I mean, you know that I was a Norse scholar so, for a while. <laughs> so you're on Norse scholar listservs? I'm just saying, I, I may have taken some Kate Blanchett, classes. Tessa Thompson, uh, and most importantly, perhaps, a big appearance from Mark Ruffalo's Hulk. Well, the, the CGI distillation of his essence. I think the real Mark Ruffalo was just saying no dapple somewhere. Uh, I'm going to steal a take from Sean Fennessy, which is that it looks like they're just going to siphon off these Avengers and just give them each a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which is like fun. Get get Immigrant Song going. Listen, in. In, All the way in, because the reasons you just said. Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, the sequel's coming out. I am excited for it because it is a lighthearted romp that does not take itself seriously. And uh, this appears to be Guardians of the Galaxy 2.5. And I think that's terrific. Um, Taika Waititi was a filmmaker of 
I think he's very funny, very talented guy. Worked on Flight of the Concords, um, directed the movie. He, here's the thing. Here's the here's the pill you have to swallow when you when you go back into the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of a lot of old friends and new friends and fun actors are showing up. Cake Blanchett. Cake Blanchett. Um, Tessa Thompson, San Johns. Tessa Thompson. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> um, but. It looks like when I say this movie looks like shit, what I mean is it visually looks like shit. Well, and it's kind of a bummer, yeah, because they make these movies in you know in the great state of Georgia, and that's not outer space. Um, We really have been maligning Georgia, and the surrounding Atlanta suburbs. Let's go to Atlanta. Can we go on the road with this podcast? There are restaurants I like to eat there. There's culture. There's life. I love that city. Yeah, and then do like a real boots on the ground reporting about whether or not (laughs) the industrial (laughs) parks of Atlanta look that way. Yeah, look, what I'm saying is there is a certain kind of in-house CG that that Marvel is employing now, and they crank it out because they're making so many of these movies, and it looks a certain way with a certain color palette, and it looks. The way they all look. It now. def does it in a Twitter not, video when you look at it like that, like as like the trailer in like in this in your social stream, you it, know. Sure. Um, yeah. I want to say I, I'm just saying it just doesn't look visually exciting, but the trailer is punchy. It's funny. Kate Blanchett look, is a you were goddess. talking to a subscriber to American Cinematographer magazine, so yeah. nobody is is more just like get me get me real film out here than me. But Terrence you know, Malick, maybe. yes, I I think that uh, one thing I would say, and I'm in on this, like I'll, I'll go see it. Basically looks like Gladiator meets Running Man meets, like, an 80s revival kind of action film, like, you know, action comedy. Uh, I admire Marvel's malleability. So this and this is going to be a what looks like a buddy comedy set on another planet where these guys have to, like, fight a bunch of boss-level people. That's great. That sounds like a good idea. This is coming from the same year where... Um, you know, not the same studio, not the Disney Marvel film studio, but like they did Logan also, which is this gritty, you know, uh, end times Western. And while DC obviously struggles with this, like, what are we? How dark should it be? Mm. How much Zack Snyder should it be? How much Christopher mm. Nolan should it be? Should we just give it all to Affleck? Does Affleck want it? All this, I, you know, push and pull. Marvel is able to pivot, even though they're really running this billion-dollar corporation at this point. They're able to say, like, okay, you know, like, like people seem to want this now. Or, like, this worked. You know, like, people liked in Civil War where you basically have a fake rivalry that then turns into a team-up. And, like, you can just kind of, like, they, for as much as they have planned out these movies through 2025 or whatever, they can still kind of adjust on the fly based on what people are responding to. So yes, to the I, extent that that... You I, know, and it's interesting. I think you're praising the quickness of their of their um, pivot, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. And I think they're smart to realize that um, what makes Thor interesting enough to have his own movie is pretty much that it's funny. Like, if you take this Norse mythology seriously and you start talking about, like, Dark elves and yeah. and what's and up on Asgard? Thunder, man. like that's a little bit okay. That that's its own thing. It's amazing they got two movies out of that. Right. But let's put them in space and have them talk about friends from work. That's great. But you're talking about the quickness of it. The one thing that I think would be beneficial at this point, well into the second decade of the Marvel century, basically in terms of the cinema, cinema, um, I wish they could do a Logan. Uh, Logan is Fox. You know, it, Fox owns owns the X Men. Yeah, yeah. And what I mean by that is. They a Valhalla rising with Thor, huh? Well, or just be like, okay, so we give it to a director, and we'll just take your time and do something else. Just do something else, and you, you know, you've 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 talked quite passionately. If you can ever be passionate about a movie 
about a guy with claws, that it's basically a pretty good Western, yeah. you know? So, okay, so maybe it would be cool if there was room for that within the Marvel Universe. At the moment, as long as... The, they're going to keep playing out the string where every Marvel movie is essentially the next chapter in one larger movie, even though they are tonally different, as you're pointing mm-hmm. out correctly. Um but I think that when we say we like Guardians of the Galaxy the best or people are like, oh, Ant-Man's fun, they're, what they're pointing to are the ones that diverge the most from that central through line. But they don't even diverge. Yeah, Black much. Panther will be a really incredible litmus test for this because it's exactly. Coogler and because it's largely – he's talked about how it's his most personal movie in a way. And um, the, the extent to which that movie has to wind up being like, oh, we have to set up uh, you know, like this – Captain America thing. It it will be fascinating to see how how hands off they are with the. Product. That will be a really interesting test because um, the political reality of making that movie uh, will have a direct impact on the artistic value of mm-hmm. that movie. Yeah. Um, they went way out in front of their skis in a way that I appreciate. I'm glad they did. Where they were like, we will have an African American star, predominantly African American cast and director of this movie before they had even contacted anyone. So then they found Ava DuVernay passed and they gave it to Ryan Coogler and Ryan Coogler was like, okay, I think coming with the juice that he had off of Creed was mm-hmm. basically like, let's see what I can, let's see how far I can push this. How serious is your commitment to this? Right. And from by all accounts, he's pushed it pretty far. But we but we don't know when when is that movie even coming out. Next, next summer? Next year? I think so. Because Thor is not till November, so. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought Thor was like a summer movie. Nah. <laughs> no, man. This summer is Guardians in May. Right. And then um, Spider-Man, which is now a co- co-pro oh, right. from Marvel Homecoming. and Sony. Yeah. And then Thor. Okay. Of those three, what are you most excited for? Uh, Guardians. Okay. I think it'll be fun. Great. All right. Uh, both in on Thor. Andy, this is uh, in or out on the third season of Better Call Saul, but I wouldn't say, like, you know, it's, I would I'd be stunned if either of us were like, I'm out. Uh, but coming third season, uh, obviously, if you, I don't really know, like, Breaking Bad fans are, are very precious, so I don't want to, like, uh, be like, of course, you can read the internet and find out about some think, possible appearances this year. I think year. they all know. I yeah. think the promotion of it has said it. I think the end of last season gave it away. Right. Um, I'm going to say. And so how do you, some third season, and this was obviously a show that defied, I think everybody was like, felt warmly towards Mm -hmm. the people involved, were a little skeptical about the need for the show, Mm -hmm. then became like incredibly, uh, like then then the the expectations were raised for the show, I think, because people were like, oh, this is an American crime epic. When you look at it like this, it's like this. And the first few episodes of the first season were really strong. Yeah. And, and, um, introduce us to a bunch of new characters played by great great performance like Ray Seahorn and uh, Michael McKeon to say to name a few and now it's the third season and I think that we're starting to see uh, the Albuquerque of Breaking Bad kind of come into a yeah. little bit of, of, of vision I I mean I feel like going into this third season I've not seen any of the episodes yet um, it premieres tonight um, I feel kind of the way I did at the end of the second season which is I am more impressed and respectful of the show than I am passionate about it um, I think that it is it remains like a masterclass in plotting, in writing, it's certainly in direction. You know, it, it, it has inherited the DNA of, of Breaking Bad in that respect. There's really no other show that is as crisp and precise as it as this one is. I think it has tripped up on two points. One, and we've talked about this throughout both seasons. The intricacies of doc review in the legal field yeah. are not as interesting as the intricacies of meth cookery and the drug business. Mm-hmm. And when the show, you know, obsesses over the details, over you know the post-it notes on the window, it's fundamentally not as interesting. Mm-hmm. 
um, even though the show does its absolute best to make it feel like it is. The other point I would say is that I think it's almost outsmarted itself in terms of cleverness by trying to main by trying to have cake and eat it too it's essentially being two shows and it's even teased that fact by the the fact that each season i don't i assume tonight will be the same thing has opened by giving us a glimpse of post breaking bad saul um of life at the cinnabon so we know that at some point they will be able to pull the trigger and give us the future and not just the past right they also have teased us throughout by being able to say, well, if this gets a little slow, we can just break and bad this up. We could just science this bitch up and bring back all of your old friends at any right. moment and make it that show. And they've walked this very precarious line by having two protagonists, essentially, on very different shows. The Mike show is the Breaking Bad show, and the Jimmy show is this very small yeah. bore. American loser. Yeah. Yeah, examination of an American loser and his very intricate relationship with his brother. No other show in America in 2017 could have devoted two seasons to the, that, that brotherly this relationship. Has been, this is essentially like a very illustrative example of what we've been talking about probably for the last year or so, which is like, I think it it becomes like a drinking game to see how much we play IP to say, mm-hmm. to say the words intellectual property. But the only, like you're saying, the only way they make this show, the only way AMC is like, oh yeah, sure, let's make mm-hmm. a a weird slow show that's like a dramedy about a guy who essentially is a is, is a a galoof, you know, mm-hmm. is if it's part of a blockbuster universe yeah. relative to AMC, a blockbuster universe that at any given point just expands that brand. But also let's think about the fact that to make a show about adults, which is what the show has been in terms of the the Jimmy storyline. It's Jimmy a grown man with his older brother in a relationship with an established lawyer, um, Kim, in this case, that's basically that's your that's your congratulations bouquet once you've won the Emmys. Right. You cannot really walk into these so networks. You're saying it needs more Walt Jr. and say yeah, it needs more children. That's really <laughs> what the show needs. It, it needs. That was my favorite part about Breaking Bad. It needs all the children. Breaking Bad babies. Yeah. I feel like would be the way to do the show. Look, it, it's a weird. It feels weird because we're complaining about something, but it's like, well, it's more Breaking Bad essentially, or it's more Vince Gilligan making TV. It's more uh, Bob Odenkirk having fun exploring this role. There's no downside to this, but I think we are caught in a place that that we maybe could have predicted, which is we want a little bit more and we want a little bit less. And I still kind of feel on some level that it's inessential. Yeah. I, April's going to be crazy, man. But, but Better Call Saul. And this is actually as good a time to mention as anything. Yeah. Uh, Better Call Saul obviously comes back Monday. We will be checking in on yeah. that throughout the season. But I think that the next block of shows that mm-hmm. we'll be doing will at least always touch on... Um, Leftovers we'll talk about on Mondays, and Fargo we'll talk about on yeah. Thursdays during the re Both come back next week. Mm-hmm. Both have Carrie Coon in lead roles. <laughs> both, I've seen episodes of both. Both are excellent yeah. and really exciting. Yeah. And it, I think it does none of them. I think it's a disservice to all of them, honestly, to have them all on at the same time. Because especially compared to those two, Better Call Saul feels a little bit like a retread. I mean, Gus Fring is back. Um, sorry, I think people know that. And I, I don't love the Greatest Hits tour. You know what I mean? I'm sure they're going to find a clever way to do this. I've always loved that performance. But there's something about it, the prequel thing, yeah. that just rubs me the wrong way, especially when you have a show like Leftovers, which is so radically reinvented itself and is ending on such a creative high, and a show like Fargo, which literally is a new show. because Every it's, time. Yeah. yeah, completely new cast. And feels quite different this time from the first two seasons 
because uh, at least in the early going, there is no direct DNA connection to the storylines we had seen before. Okay, uh, last in or out. I'm surprising you a little bit with this. We didn't one. say if we were in or out on Saul, though. I'm in. Yeah, it's good television. Are you out? No, I'm ampersand. Yeah, you like push the door open and then you were like, mm, "Do I need a jacket?" Exactly. Yeah, uh, I want to ask whether or not you think I, this is the first time in a long time where reading about a show. Mm. has been as enjoyable as actually watching it. Are you and talking I, about Samurai Gourmet? No. <sighs> no, no. I have not read that much about Samurai Gourmet, oddly. <laughs> you, don't read my, um, you don't read my text. Danny wrote about it for The Ringer, and you text me about it, and you tweet about it. Uh, I wanted to say very quickly, without giving away anything that happens, that reading about Homeland, oh. which ended its 46th season last night, yes. uh, is way more entertaining than watching Homeland, and I've just been like, Huh? Like I, it basically like I, I did the uh, mouse going for the cheese and the maze thing where like I saw like spoiler yeah. homeland yeah. finale explosive finale and I was like I gotta click, click. on this and then I was like what because yeah. I hadn't seen it I hadn't watched homeland yeah, we the second off, episode man. and then uh, it was like <laughs> there's bots there's wild. like tweet bots and like the deep state yeah that's dope <laughs> are you back in I'm not back in I'm back in on reading recaps of it. It's it, it's interesting when shows fall out of like the you must you must watch this conversation, but are still then but are still playing in these very fertile waters of <laughs> prestige television where you can just do stuff, yeah, right. crazy stuff, and maybe touch on things that you wish other shows would touch on. I mean, we should we should get back to it. Um, you sound you sound enthused, but I just don't want to. <laughs> That's I'm sorry. I Why keep coming back care to about that. The deep state, man. I'm not as concerned about it as I should be, perhaps. All right, in on Homeland recaps, out on Homeland. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about Winter It All. Looking great for a wedding or a special event or a live podcast has so. never been easier with TheBlackTux.com. With high-quality rental suits and tuxedos delivered to your doorstep, The Black Tux has given guys a new way to rent. And get this, Andy. The Black Tux yeah. offers home try-on. So you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before the event. And the best part? It's completely done online. No trips to the tux shop required. TheBlackTux.com lets you create your look or choose from tons of stylist-selected outfits starting at just $95. These suits have a modern fit and and are made from Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market. And if you have any questions or issues, their customer care team has your back every step of the way. After ordering your suit, it will arrive 14 days before your event. That's a full two weeks to try it on. Make sure everything fits. Make sure you're looking snazzy. If everything is cool, cool. If anything is less than perfect, the Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. When your event is over, just drop that bad boy back in the mail. The shipping is free both ways. How easy is that? To get started now, visit theblacktux.com slash BSPN and explore Experience a new way to rent. That's theblacktux.com slash BSPN. All right, we're back, Andy, and we wanted to spend some time talking a little bit about uh, this movie on Netflix called Win It All. Sean and I uh, got a chance to sit down with Jay Johnson and Joe Swanberg in Texas. <sighs> yeah, can we, sigh. can we Can we just take a pause here about that? Yeah, how are you feeling about that? You know, here's the thing. Jake Johnson, wonderful person. My, perhaps my favorite podcast. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when you were on vacation a couple years ago, he just he just stole your seat. Yeah, he, he was just he just co-hosted the show yeah. with me one time. I mean, yeah. That's that's how how good of a guest, what a good friend of this podcast he is. And I have to say, I feel a little twinge. It made me think of, and I know you will get this reference as well. It made me think of um, the 2009 Adam McGoyan sexual obsession drama Chloe. Yeah, definitely. starring Amanda it's, Seyfried. It, it's always in the sort of forefront, right? Because it's basically a situation where. 
we have a relationship, you and I, mm-hmm. and then a third party had an affair with both of us. Does it ever feel weird that you have the most random movie references ever because, like, you just kind of stopped watching them at some point? So, like, if you just catch yeah. Chloe, that's, like, is, up there with Die Hard in it, terms it, of, like, how much you reference it. My, my, my counter to that is, are you saying that there have been more titillating <laughs> sexual obsession dramas that have come out of Canada in the years since? I stopped going to the, the I don't movies. know. I don't know. I think it's as fresh a reference as ever. My point being, I have mixed feelings. I was thrilled you guys got to talk, though, and I, I am especially thrilled that you yeah. were able to talk about this movie. You have FOMOJ, Fear of Missing Out on Jake. Right? I do have it constantly. Yeah. Um, th- this, okay, can I, can I just ballpark a couple things here? Mm-hmm. When Netflix started just throwing the money around, I think one of the things that we said on this podcast was that we hoped they would start throwing it towards independent filmmakers. Um, Sean Fantasy obviously has a big piece on The Ringer today about disruption. Yeah. You guys love disruption talk. But I feel like you're being sarcastic, but we do. I, I, well, I'm being sarcastic about that word, but the piece is outstanding and very relevant. Yeah, and, and it's and, basically about Amazon and Netflix moving into the space that used to be Miramax, Paramount Vantage, other smaller independent Sony studios, and the physical space of the art house mm-hmm. indie cinema that would stretch across the country and you would kind of have this community of theaters and movie lovers who would word of mouth get these these movies off the ground and, and now it's just Netflix it's on 90 million screens at once and Joe Swanberg um, project basically has been to just keep the cameras going like mm-hmm. he's just made a ton of movies um, of varying budgets with varying star wattage um, but I think the most exciting and fruitful collaboration has been with Jake Johnson, two Chicago guys. Now they've made yeah, I'll give a little, three or four movies together. A little together. bit of background on Joe, Joe Swanberg is that he's a, a filmmaker who's been working probably for the last like 10 or 15 years, roughly, and has made a, like is incredibly prolific. He, he writes, directs, he also produces other people's sometimes work. Sometimes he acts Sometimes he appears in other people's work. He's his, done things. His, his young son appears in all of them. Yeah, and uh, but has not no longer going oh. to be doing that. Yeah, uh, And he is... Is because he got an agent? <laughs> His kid was like, Dad. Um, and he's, you know, started off and he was kind of the figurehead for what was loosely termed the mumblecore movement, which was these uh, very talky, um, dryly funny, domestic kind of hipster dramas set in, in New York or Chicago or wherever, where it would just sort of be like a person trying to decide what to do with their life. Largely and, improvised, yeah, too. Yeah, right? largely improvised, often shot in black and white, just very low budget. Um, but. A very intriguing films, and then over time has increasingly started working with bigger budgets, bigger actors. Although still, I probably only in like the five million, if if that you know range. I can't, I can't imagine it has to be less than that. I so mean, in the last he, couple of years, he's made Drinking Buddies, Digging for Fire, and the Netflix show Easy, all for Netflix. Happy Christmas is another good one. And Happy Christmas, uh, but you know you see people like Anna Kendrick and Olivia Wilde, Orlando Bloom showing up in his movies, and I would say Win It All is. Easily the best thing he's ever done, and that is a compliment. Like it's like I I, I like I'm very interested in Joe Swanberg stuff, but this is the most lovable movie he has ever made, and a large part of that I think is down to the f- partnership he's obviously developed with Jake Johnson, which they talked a lot about in that pod, and they've got you know Sean called it a kind of Altman Elliot Gould thing going, but they have a real. When you see a director and their star kind of have the same and language, co-writer they write and together. co-writer yeah they write these these pieces together, and this was obviously something that they felt very passionately about because it's set in Chicago. Uh, Jake loves playing cards. It's a big part of the movie is, is gambling. Um, you, you you believe him that he's a, he knows how to play cards because only someone who actually plays cards could have that many, oh, my God, I can't believe I just lost faces. Yeah, I know. 
You know, I feel like he's, he's really, really he's really dialed into it's that. It's a roller coaster. Yeah. So what did you think of the movie? Uh, I really loved watching the movie. I think, to your point, it's exciting for me to see filmmaker like Joe Swanberg dip increasing number of toes into, um, I don't want to call it mainstream movie making, but mainstream movie structure. This, more than any of his other movies, I mean, Drinking Buddies, I think, to this point, was his best movie. And that was a movie about uh, a man and a woman who were work friends, and then would they be something else, and what would that relationship be? And then it just, it was, you know, largely improvised and felt emotionally true and very engaging, but you couldn't really give a log line. You couldn't sell it on the poster, what happens. Right. This has a more conventional movie narrative. Um, Jake Johnson is sort of a, a layabout guy with a gambling problem. Um, a, an associate, I don't know what you'd call him, leaves him with a bag of money and says, don't open this bag. It leaves him with a bag. says, don't open it. I'm going to be gone for six months. I love a bag of money movie. It's a bag of money. And of course, he gets tempted. And of course, some hijinks and low jinks ensue. Um, it follows arcs familiar to people from a lot of gambling movies. In a lot of ways, there's there's elements of, of Rounders, there's elements of California Split, the great Altman movie. There's, I, I mean, if you squint, maybe you could see a little bit of the Professor Mark Wahlberg opus, The Gambler. Yeah. I know you were looking for that. I'm sure they would probably say the original Gambler, but yeah. <laughs> nope, only the recent one. Yeah. Um, but what's nice to see as they is that they're doing it in a very organic way, in that the things that still win, sorry to make the unintentional pun, in this movie are the things that have always been present in Swanberg's movie, which is a deep love of um, humanity mm-hmm. and human interactions. There are th- almost throwaway moments that are clearly improvised and just alive in local bars with groups of friends, people doing shots, brotherly ribbing. Joe Latrulio from the state and from Brooklyn Nine-Nine is just tremendous as Jake Johnson's older brother. Um, yeah, Cameron, Cameron Collins wrote something about the movie for The Ringer, and he, I think, just t- talked about the comedic impulsiveness of yeah. Swanberg's characters and you know a movie like this could get awfully dark awfully fast and it is about addiction in some ways and it is about self-destruction in, in some ways but I think that it views those things as parts of life and just like a lot of people who and I you know not to trivialize it but just like a lot of people who go through addiction issues there are also other things happening in their life that yes. can be if not great at least like bright spots and and you have to he actually gives a very like rich look at one character's ups and downs yeah rather than just like the descent into madness and the possible redemption no the possible redemption starts very early that's one of the things that's different from this than other movies Mm -hmm. and it gives that it it gives that enough road to make it feel like it's really um a road you could you could drive on you know we talked um you guys will hear this in in a in two weeks but chris and i talked to damon lindelof about leftovers season three and uh, we were talking about the shift from season one, which I'm still on record as not liking, in seasons two and three. And he talked. He mentioned that you know he, this was a terrible thing. He had a period of time when he went to a bunch of funerals, but it reminded him that people often laugh at funerals, mm-hmm. and that that was enough to sort of change the nature of the show in a very big way. Um, that I was thinking of that when I was watching this movie. I mean, uh, Jake's character's addiction sponsors, played by Keegan Michael Key, uh, who is a dramatic, who can play drama. But it's also just like... And spends most of the movie busting his balls. Yeah, it's basically like, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Um, there are moments between uh, Jake Johnson and Joe Latrulio that are just so, like you're saying, effortlessly funny in the way that a fam- family members would be to each other. Uh, there is a, a me and Julio down by the schoolyard joke in a moment that you least expect it. It is basically like a right cross to your jaw. Like it's so surprising. Right. And it's so funny. Um, it's, it's also, and I'm curious what you think about this, um, 
I have never seen a Joe Swanberg film in a theater. I've only watched them on iTunes or Netflix or wherever they've shown up. And I think a lot of them are available for streaming sure. still. Um, they're suited to it. And I don't mean that as an insult either. You know, there is something, Win It All is 90 minutes. It is intimate and engaging. And it's the widest screen movie they've made in a lot of ways. But he still shot a lot of it in his actual house that he lives in. A Swanberg's wife plays Joe Trulio's wife. I mean, he's working with yeah. what he knows. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very intimate and engaging on a small screen. It's almost like people were giving Mumblecore credit or blame for pioneering a new kind of cinema. That wasn't necessarily praise 10 years ago. I would say that Swanberg deserves some credit now because I think he is making, maybe more than anyone else, and I'm just throwing this out there, he is making a new kind of movie for the home screen. Yeah, I don't know. I, I saw it on a th- in, a, in a theater, actually. This is great. Look so at us. Two I, takes. I saw it in Texas at its premiere at South by Southwest. At um at the Paramount, which is sort of a notoriously rock raucous, like you know, very like vibrant theater going experience, like it encourages people to clap and cheer, and um, it definitely colors the way you see a movie. I would say that there are parts of Win It All that look incredible on a wide screen, mm-hmm. like a big screen, like the the racetrack stuff and the racetrack you know, stuff the is really nice. Romance, the romantic walks through Chicago were very like you know, I feel like they really came alive by being on a big screen, but um. For something that's gonna be, you know, we were talking about Better Call Saul and how hard it would be to sell Better Call Saul mm-hmm. if it wasn't part of the Breaking Bad world. If you go to somebody now and you're like, "Well, I want to make a movie about a, a lovable loser who uh, needs to overcome his demons by by letting them off the leash mm-hmm. while also having a love story and just a family story going mm-hmm. on," most people would probably say no. So. I love the fact that this is getting made no matter what. And the fact that it's getting such a wide distribution Mm -hmm. uh, bounce and the fact that maybe more movies like this will get made if people find out, like, wow, there's like a real audience. I mean, God only knows what the numbers actually are. And that's something that Sean sort of touches on in his piece is that we're going to have to think about different ways to evaluate the success or failure of films, which is very healthy for them artistically, I think. I think that's a good point. Unless Netflix is using crazy weird data to be like well you know well they'll, but regardless of what they're using they'll never tell us right so that so, does change things but you know we can't really play monday morning quarterback anymore about box office receipts did did win it all have a successful first weekend everybody who's seen it seems to love it yeah but you know like i don't know how many people that is because i have my twitter bubble and you have your twitter bubble and that's what we understand as like what people are watching there's also a question of people's mindset as they approach a movie like this if they're coming into it cold they see it's a movie they see it's on Netflix they turn it on um, we're not going to spoil the movie um, yeah, it's, the, it, the, the end the last 10 minutes are really interesting and I don't mean that pejoratively I think there. I, I've gone back and forth on a lot of it I think that regardless it is true to the movie that Jake and Joe wanted to make mm-hmm. I also think that it feels fine for a movie that was about that was not necessarily about high stakes rooms in Chinatown, you know, that was about these people and where they are in their lives and specifically about a, a, um, you know, a, a portion of a life, yeah. not dooming one, not dooming people one way or another. It's just about a portion of yeah. life and it could, it could go either way. It's a summer it, in Chicago. It's freeing in a way, because if this was made with a Hollywood budget, if this was made specifically to be released in theaters, I wonder if there would be that pressure. Yeah. Well, also you know? on the flip side, uh, if it was made for specifically for award season, yeah. Uh, it may have to have a little too much Manchester by the sea for my taste. You know what I mean? It may have to be like everything falls apart and then this guy gets like a little bit out of the hole but really learns his lesson. Yeah, be careful. What I mean is as an audience member, it's it's important to like be careful what we wish for. 
because if we if we dismiss something that feels pat or easy, um, the alternative might actually be a lot worse. Yeah, and I think that sometimes we long for this imagined 90s movies of middle-brow movies, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily think... Uh, you know, th- that means different things to different people. For some people, it's like, I want Pacific Heights. I just want like a cool domestic thriller or yeah. I want a cool courtroom thriller that doesn't have to do with the end of the world. And I think what it what it really means is you want a multiplicity of experiences in your movie going. You don't just want uh, Ragnarok or Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. You want to have some stuff that I has... Both are about ends of worlds. In but a way. you want to have something that has elements of the entertainment value of something mm-hmm. like Thor with the quality of something like Manchester by the Sea, which for a lot of people, you, you'd say, like, depends on where you are on the axis, but you'd be like, oh, that's like Ocean's Eleven, or that's like Out of Sight. You know, that's like these movies that are just like really fun to watch, but also thought-provoking. Yeah, I don't want... I also don't want to um, spoil any more of it, but it, I'm once again thinking of part of our conversation with Damon and you, you ask him, and this is we can just consider this a, a teaser or a preview, sure. but you asked him about some of the work he did writing for big Hollywood movies yeah. in the period right before The Leftovers. Um, Prometheus. Um, and World War Z. Yeah. Well, he did Tomorrowland. Fix, fix up work on World War Z. I think he, he was maybe at least in the room for some of the Star Trek stuff. Mm-hmm. And he talked about why he dislikes big budget stuff for the same reason we do and that it falls into these same categories. It always has to be bigger, bigger. The world always has to be threatened. There always has to be a big battle. And then he watched his fingers type those things because that is the language of big budget cinema now and why he prefers the type of storytelling possible on the small screen. And so now we're the terms are just getting blurred. We're talking about a movie, but we're talking about it. Yeah, his stuff about Prometheus was interesting. I'm looking forward for people to hear that. Um, Last thing. If we're talking about navigating these different, these changing terms and these blurring worlds, I got to give credit to to Jake here because he he's in the Mummy, the new Tom Cruise movie. Mm-hmm. Um, jury's out what that will even be, but and he's been very supportive of it publicly and talking about it. But you know, I think he's also been very honest that he he does those movies. I'm sure it's fun to like fight in the desert with Tom Cruise, but he does them because then he can take the bag of money. And make this movie. Yeah, the cool thing in the conversation we had with him was it's not like um, he started out making weird independent cinema Mm -hmm. and then realized that to keep doing that, he needed to be in Jurassic and Mummy. Uh, He did Improv, he did UCB or whatever. I think he's done various groups. And he got a gig on a sitcom where he's basically like, for lack of a better like description, the hot guy on, on on a long running network sitcom. Yeah. And... So that's the world he knew, you know, and it wasn't like he came from this. And it was like mm-hmm. Swanberg introduced him to these ideas like, of self-financing, oh, you could just of having this. creative control, yeah. of finding other distribution channels, of of basically doing everything yourself. And if it works, it's it's your reward. And if it fails, it's it's your loss. And it's obviously something that, as a gambler, thrills Jake Johnson. You know, it's really cool yeah. to hear him talk about it because I think it speaks to his probably his predilection for playing a little bit with the, with with house money in general you know and um i think that these guys are not making to the wonder like they are making like m- the movies that they want to make mm-hmm. are about people with real jobs doing real things with slightly like amplified circumstances and it, who ha- it, people who hang out with the stars of hoop dreams in yeah, bars exactly. which by the way that's a funny little thing yeah, in the I background know. it's awesome I, um, I, I i think um the only other point to say is it's also great because we like Jake so much personally, but I also think he is a terrific actor and performer with a lot of other shades to play. And we often don't think about these choices. We, we've been, we, you know, we talk about 
Colin Trevorrow can make Safety Not Guaranteed mm-hmm. with Jake Johnson, and then uh, Jurassic World with Jake Johnson. But, Star Wars. But yeah. those are the cho- but probably yeah. not with Jake Johnson. Yeah. But those are the choices for the director. If you think about what these changes have done to the actor, like where where are the opportunities for Jake to be all the things that right. he, he's he mainstreamed s- love for? He's funny. He's sardonic. Uh, you know, he's he can be the good looking guy, but he's plays these comedic roles, but. How many notes does he get to play? Yeah, in, and in Hollywood, in the studios, he's Steve Zahn. And I love Steve Zahn, but mm-hmm. that's who he is. He's like the third guy in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's from Tom Cruise, Russell Crowe, and then Jake is there to do kind of like... Bits. Bits. In Netflix, in Joe Swanberg, he's Paul fucking Newman. Mm-hmm. That's that's a, that's a huge difference, you yep. know? And there are a lot of actors from like the last 20 years that I wish had the the chance he did. Yes. Steve Zahn being one of them, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, who did a great job on Treme, but like... That was what, like, to see Jake get to do something that's, like, a classic, like, archetypal performance. Like, you would have seen when it all in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it's really awesome that there's a place for him to do it now. Last thing, um, when, when I was going through the litany of some gambling movies, these are all movies that we both really like. Um, I, I was reminded again as I watched when it all that, that my the way that I watch gambling movies is a lot like... Well, it's why I don't watch horror movies, oh, but it's yeah. like or like Jaws movies, basically. The like the likelihood and the appeal of me going on the water to like go the big or go big game hunting yeah. or whatever is the same as me going to a high stakes table. So is it the... I, I have to say, like, I have never understood a compulsion less than gambling or or playing cards. Like I like like playing cards is super fun. But, but like penny, money. like penny ante, yeah, sure. Right, right. But like, I've gone to Vegas, I've gone to Atlantic City. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, I don't even see the appeal. One of the things that Win It All does really well, and all those movies do really well, is they speak to um, addiction culture and anyone who's ever had like a few too many drinks or anything. You can feel certain things in this movie. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a great work of art. But I don't, it's I don't get it, man. You. You you play the tables. Uh, I think that there's very different experiences for blackjack and, po- and poker. This is what my so I watched the movie with my wife and our friend Gina last night. She, her when I gave her this spiel, I was I was road testing some podcast <laughs> yeah. material last night. Her response was the same. Was blackjack was something that she found kind of fun. Blackjack's fun, but it's like it's like seeing if you can fly. You know what I mean? And if it works <laughs> out, it's probably like a unique, the, the only feeling in the world is that yeah. is winning at blackjack right. for a, like on a run. It goes away so fast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can just, that is like the ups and downs of blackjack are so intense. They are like a drug. Yeah. Poker, I think it just requires a level of patience that I personally just like DNA wise don't have. Right. But I know people, Sean, like people who really like just like, chipping away and playing nine hours at a poker table well, and and they are like this is heaven so i think it just really depends on the game you're playing and how you're but playing Playing poker is fun i think it's a fun game right. with friends but there's an element in, but there are in, people who are like specifically like playing poker with strangers and just being like don't talk to me yeah i'm here to play dollar two dollar stakes like for for nine ten hours win it all it's also we should say there's a lot yeah. of poker but it's about gambling yeah. his personality is yeah, such yeah, yeah. that he's, he's he's all when he has money whatever he yeah. spends it all he goes to the, he plays the ponies he's He's a true, true degenerate. Room. He wants to bet on everything. Yeah, but that you know, just to, in the movie, the, the setup is is this associate is just like, here's a bag, hold it for six months, don't open it, and I'll give you ten thousand dollars. Yeah, that's but a good he, setup. My thought was like, that's a great deal. And I was like, roll credits, <laughs> roll credits. Let's see him with ten thousand bucks. The Greenwald gambling camp would, would be an interesting I experiment. Would be a terrible script doctor for a gambling movie. Let's uh, wrap up really quickly with. Uh, 
crashing, which ended its uh, first season last night with a fairly um, spiritual episode, I guess, which had always been the undercurrent of the show and is an undercurrent of Pete Holmes's comedy and his podcast work is talking about his uh, his experiences with religion, but this was pretty explicitly about that. It was about people wandering off the path mm-hmm. of their, uh, you know, trying to recenter themselves, get back in touch with some sort of higher power. And for Artie Lang, it means sort of adhering to the steps of of, of a program. And he meets Natalie Morales, friend of the pod. Yeah, and uh, for Pete Holmes, he thinks that he's going to find his salvation by getting back together with his his ex wife. And for his ex-wife, her salvation is maybe just getting out of all of these bad relationships that she's she's kind of clouded her life with. And they, they kind of go through uh, a bunch of co- comedic hijinks to, to get to wherever they're going. And the episode was directed by Judd Apatow. And uh, it was an interesting end of the season because I thought, you know, this is basically two shows. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a version of this show that is um, about Pete Holmes' adventures in stand-up. And it's like what it's like, the minutia of of uh, busking and um, working warm-up and and falling in with different comedians and the experiences you have with them. And then there's this other narrative, which is a more almost Swanbergian kind of like people at a crossroads in their life and they're trying to work it out and different thing elements are at play. I think I'm personally much more interested in the comedy part, which is yes. odd because I have definitely had my fill of like thinking about comedy. Uh, but that was that's the show that I'm more interested in. Um, I'm not. I'm curious which one you like more. I think you're describing is the classic Apatovian sandwich. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the what drew people to Judd Apatow's movies early, and what has driven some people away from them has been that these are two tastes that don't always taste great together. Where you think about Trainwreck, which is hilarious for half of the movie, and then the lessons start. Right. Um, and then I think it's a less successful movie after that because it's this weird, you know, hybrid of. We're being silly, and there's LeBron James, but seriously, mm-hmm. she should stop drinking. Right. Um, I really enjoyed the show. I think it sort of came out of nowhere. Um, it only eight episodes. I don't know how much of a footprint it made. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I really am excited actually for the chances of a second season because there, during the season there was a lot of struggle to find out which which one of those dogs could hunt, basically, mm-hmm. like which show was the better show. And I think that grounding the character in the, the sort of the personal anguish, of course, makes sense. That's TV 101. It's Movies 101. It's not just Judd Apatow. But what you spoke to is, is I think, is right. I think that as a glimpse of a burgeoning, hilarious, interconnected, warm, crazy, neurotic community, um, which is the comedy world probably everywhere, but in this case in New York City, I thought Crashing was outstanding. Um, I think... You know, I, I am a I'm a Pete Holmes fan, fan of him. I like his podcast, and my favorite parts of his podcast aren't the aren't the lulls. I really, really like how intense he is about doing self work, about talking to his guests about like whether they're into um, Buddhism or self help tapes or um, therapy or whatever. Like he gets into it with mm-hmm. people. Um, and I mean, I guess that's sort of what pod, all podcasts except this one do. Um, we only talk about disruptor. <laughs> we, we only talk about Cake, cake Blanchett. Cake Blanchett and the Disruptors, but I'm my first really, album. I'm really drawn to it, particularly because if you add pe- funny people doing it, it can be entertaining. Um, so I think the best parts of the show were the first half of Apatow's Funny People, yeah. when they're just making jokes. I think the best parts of the show reflected Pete Holmes' sort of unique perspective as being... Being an outcast in a dork in a way that is not 
common to these things. It's yeah. not just it's not that he's too punk rock. It's that he's the opposite. You know, he's a giant loaf of white bread wandering to this world. Um, the best episode is probably the Sarah Silverman episode um, where he has some success and, and, and it's a very warm and fuzzy feeling. The least successful is definitely the one after that where uh, Leaf's soon-to-be ex-wife shows up and just wants to bone him and then he makes fun of Rachel Ray's mom. Yeah. I mean, it, that was the one that was most hijinks 101. But the other thing was the Artie Lang part. Yeah. You, I didn't know this. Right before we recorded, you told me that he had been arrested for drugs recently. Yeah, or tested positive in some And, and yeah. I reacted, in, so I was aghast, and you asked me if I was an Artie Lang fan, because not not really a Stern Show guy. Right. But because of podcasts, actually, I've become a huge fan of his, because he is so vulnerable. Zach Mack is vibrating right now. He's, I know, Zach he, loves me saying this. But, like, there's a podcast, there's an episode of, of You Made It Weird, Pete's podcast, when they were on tour promoting Crashing, and they recorded it at Morimoto in Philly, actually. And you can hear the waiters, like, delivering sizzling steak to their publicist. And it's ostensibly Artie's the guest and Judd and Peter the interviewers. And it gets real. And it gets so real, Artie has to get up and leave, and they don't know where he's gone. Um, and that part of the show, like, the meta-narrative of giving this guy uh, this big stage to have a chance and then the role he plays as a mentor on the show and then also realizing that he's, of course, like all of us, he's still struggling in his real life, was really gripping to me. So I'm in on this show. Yeah. I hope it gets a second season and I hope it learns, like, I mean, smart people, like like smart shows do, I hope it learns from what worked best, which is let's let's get into it with these people and their lives and with the backdrop backdrop of comedy, we don't need the is the ex wife a shrew or does she just need her own path? Like, right. we honestly don't need that. Right. I think that that, that has like a, a shorter shelf life too. Because like, what do you do if you're like, well, this guy has to grow up, and then like at the end of every Apatow movie, they pretty much grow up. That's it. Exactly. You know what I mean, there's not like you know you can do a this is fifty if you want, but like I mean, exactly. It know. also speaks to the limits of TV, where the way you get the show made is well, you walk in the door with Judd Apatow, but the second thing you do to get the show made is you're like. Uh, in the first episode, he sees his wife screwing somebody. He was a funny guy named Leaf. And then he has to learn to be really funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the pilot. That's a pilot. But that's very different than the second season of a yeah. show that has a lot that has a lot of runway. Speaking of Judd Apatow shows, next Monday's pod will be uh, largely dedicated to the rap- the series finale of Girls. Yeah. So we'll do that. 80's off Thursday, so we'll have some, some grab bag of of guests Kate Blanchett perhaps will come in and talk about wealth management Um, but until then talk to you soon great job Baranski Hey, thanks to Fusion TV's The AV Club for sponsoring the episode today. Pop culture is everywhere. According to non-existent studies, it is 83% of the things you consume, even more than oxygen. At the acclaimed pop culture website, The AV Club, it's all they ever want to talk about. And now, they are coming to TV. The AV Club, hosted by John Teddy, is a weekly deep dive that illuminates all the fun, strange corners of pop culture. The AV Club airs Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fusion TV. Fusion.net slash where to watch for details.